If you would remain standing um, for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, it's page 553 in the Pew Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun." Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is under the sun, that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, um, these words might be familiar to some of us. Um, They might be concerning to some of us. Um, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we study Ecclesiastes 1, hearing um, that the author is seeing the meaninglessness, the vanity in things. Lord, help us um, to hear these things, uh, but then to also uh, recall and remember and long for the hope that you have. Lord, we pray that you would guide and direct us, uh, even now as we sit here. Um, help me to, to say the words that are profitable for you. I pray that the words that are from me would um, be no more, that they, that they would be said, that they would fall to the ground, that they would be no more and not be remembered. I pray that your word would go forth in power um, and that they, it would strengthen those who are here. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Ecclesiastes, you get a realistic picture of the world. 
Um, but if you walk into this uh, and if you hear these words that I just read, or even you go back and read them again, uh, you might be concerned. You might say that this sounds like someone who is depressed um, or who is hopeless. Uh, and maybe, maybe there's something correct in that, in hearing these words. Um, but Ecclesiastes is actually a book that gives us a great mirror into our lives uh, and into the, into the things that we long for, that we can see and taste and touch, uh, and helps us to see the hollowness, the vanity in them. I think of the, the students that I, that I meet with often, and their questions are, I wish I knew what I was supposed to do next. Uh, as though I were a genie that could just tell them. Um, I'm frustrated with the way that things are right now, maybe socially, but in particular with the way things that, that are going on in their lives in that critical juncture. Uh, they're just frustrated and feel like maybe there's no hope or maybe there's nothing that's good that's going on. And then some, some students even get to a point where they say, does anything really matter? And what's amazing is that Ecclesiastes, and, and, and I, I want to say this too, that those aren't just words that I hear from 18 to 22-year-olds or people who are in the college age or at UTSA, but these are, these are things that I hear from my neighbors, from my family, from people um, that are of my age, of older generations. And I, I think that Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes 1 in particular, actually gives voice uh, to those concerns. Actually helps us to see that they are not alone, that maybe you are not alone, because you might be dealing with these things that feel insurmountable. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of music that was popularized whenever I was in high school called emo, which is short for emotional uh, type of music, and sometimes it can be mixed in with goth music. Anyway, uh, it's interesting because that last hymn that we, sa- that we sang, I felt like I was being transported into like a gothic cathedral uh, with how high it sounded. Um, but anyway, in, in, in emo music or emotional music, it shows this kind of dark view of the world, this dark but also kind of realistic view of the world, that things just don't work out as they're supposed to that things are hard, that often there is an emotional, um, there, there are emotional um, things that happen. Um, now, it goes into really, really dark and really awful places most of the time, but it touches on something that many of us feel and experience. There's even some shows that are popular right now, um, Atlanta and Reservation Dogs, that get to this idea that though there are people that live in particular contexts, Uh, people who are living in the black community in Atlanta and on a reservation in Oklahoma, that they have some beauty and some goodness in their cultural context, but also that there are some really sad things that they deal with often, that that they have to deal with the hardships that are in those places. And so Ecclesiastes 1 is for all of these people. It's for those who are frustrated with how things are going. But again, for many of us, it's a really jarring part of the Bible because it's simply what we don't expect of the Bible. 
We expect when we open up the Bible, and, and maybe, maybe none of you are like this, but I know even students now who will flip through the Bible and think that if I just put my finger on a verse, that it will give me the kind of encouragement uh, that I want. And imagine you're about to walk into a test, and you somehow flip to this, and it says, everything is vanity. Vanity, vanity. Um, how encouraged would you feel going into a test? Not very, right? Um, or if you have some big project or something. And so we tend to think of the Bible like that, that it's just going to be this thing that we can stick our hand into like a pot of gold and get some really nice piece of gold or something that is, that is going to be really, really good and really nourishing for our hearts. Um, and w- what the Bible is, is that it is written to a particular people, to God's people, And there are all of these letters that give us wisdom, that give us history, that help us to understand the good news about Jesus, right? But they are written by God to us, and it helps us to follow him. So keep that in mind, that the Bible is written by God to us so that we can follow him. It's not this magical thing for us to pick up something that makes us feel good or look good or, um, you know, have some kind of, like, uh, intellectual epiphany. And so it's this collection of books, and and the Bible actually speaks about really difficult things in life. The Bible does not sugarcoat the people, even. Uh, In fact, the only hero in the Bible is Jesus himself. Every other person in the Bible is uh, frail. Every other person in the Bible dies of some kind of cause. Every single person in the Bible has uh, defects in them. And so it goes deep and it goes hard and it shows us the reality of what we deal with and what we live with. But I want to also tell you this, that Ecclesiastes takes us to that reality by someone who is at an incredible position to tell us about wisdom and to tell us about how the world really is. According to the first verse, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then further on down, it talks about that this man was given wisdom, all of the wisdom surpassing knowledge, right? We can pick up from this that this is King Solomon, David's son, and according to 1 Kings chapter 3, we're given understanding into Solomon's life that he was the wisest man in the world, that God actually just like gave him and, and, um, and, and desired for him to see wisdom in some very, very deep ways, right? He was a man who walked closely with God. But Solomon, we also learned, is someone who enjoyed the things of this world, so he was wise, but he wasn't, he, 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 it's not like he was completely separated from the world. As king in Israel, he was also incredibly rich. He lived opulently. He had many, many wives and concubines, and he enjoyed them. And so according to the world's standards, uh, not necessarily the standards of the church or of the Bible, but of the world's standards, Solomon lived the largest life that you could ever live. He had everything that you would have ever wanted. There would have been some kind of celebrity show about Solomon because he was living 
the best life that anyone could ever imagine. And so it's incredibly shocking that he says, vanity of vanities in verse 2, all is vanity. Everything that you see out there, all of those things that you may be desiring, it's vanity. And I, and, and I would actually use the word that is used in the NIV, the New English ver- or um, New International Version, which is meaningless. And the reason that I use that is because in our day, in 2023, we are all looking for some kind of meaning in something. We are all looking for how, how does this matter? How does this matter? Is this, is this job going to give me meaning? Is this thing going to give me meaning? And so meaningless really touches on how we experience the world today. We are longing for something that gives us meaning. And Solomon just wants us to know and, and just wants to put it to us plainly the world will not give you meaning. In fact, it is meaningless. It's kind of a mic drop moment, as many of my college students would say. And so there's two questions for us to consider here. First, what is meaningless in this world? And how, to, and how does Solomon speak of that? And then, really, a, a, a necessary question for us to walk away with, where's the hope in Ecclesiastes? Like, I hear all of this, that, that things are meaningless, that the world is hollow, but where is the hope? And so that's where we're going to go with, that, that's where we're going to go toward this morning. So first, what is the meaninglessness? That's a mouthful. What is the meaninglessness in the world? Well, verses 3 through 7 speak to the rhythms of creation and how life has continued to go on, but without anything that is, is meaningful right? It's as though the world just moves on and nobody really cares or there's nothing that that would really matter to it. So verse 3 says this, what does man gain in all the toil in which he toils under the sun? He has seen and he has been a witness to all of the work that has been done, the temple that that was raised up in his honor, which is beautiful. And, And he can say, what does that really matter? All of that work, all of that creativity, what is the point of all of that hard work? And that's a really hard and a really difficult question that later on in Ecclesiastes, um, Solomon does deal with. Verse 4 says that people are only here for a little while. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And he's being a little hyperbolic and saying the earth remains forever, but in in the sense he's saying that all of this is is going to be, like all all of these people are just going to be here for a second. Life is a vapor. Isaiah 60 says that people are like grass, and the limitations and fragility of life continues on. It's like a generation comes and goes, and there's just nothing that happens. Nobody truly cares. Again, it's really kind of sad. That we hear the sun, the wind, and the sea in the next couple of verses. That they all do their thing, and it's as though the world doesn't really have any meaning. Uh, wind just changes directions. The, sea, the, the um, streams run to the sea. Who cares? Is essentially what Solomon is telling us. Then verses 8 and 10 speak to the longings inside of us. Or said differently, 
that we have so much lack of control in how we experience the world. Hear it. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. We, we don't have satisfaction in seeing something, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those. And so when looked at realistically, Solomon gives us some good points as to why things are meaningless, of why these things come and go and they have their being, but really there's nothing that is critical and crucial that is in the world. Um, I wanted to pull from some of the, some of the people that I think uh, give us a, a picture of this. And what's honestly sad about that in, in our world is that many of these people live in such direness because they have, they have nothing um, they, they, they have nothing that they can live for. So one of the great authors of the 20th century was Virginia Woolf. And how she talked about humanity is that books are the mirrors of the soul. And she says, growing up is losing some illusions in order to acquire others. I think of that in having, having kids and some of the little play, you know, little ways that they play or little things that they would like to believe in. Um, we also, uh, those of us who are adults, have things that we would like to believe in and like to hope in um, with, the, with, with the idea and the really good possibility that they will not come to fruition, unfortunately. And then you, we have musicians who see a clear uh, path ahead and know that life is fleeting and it is truly without hope. And many of these talented people barely make it to 30 or many of them don't make it past 30 because they're consumed in how truly miserable the world is, the hollowness of the world. And for some, it might, even some of you, it might be imprisoning to hear these words. Um, I mean, church is supposed to lift our spirits, as I've said before. Um, and, or it may feel like this is just really vague and impertinent. Um, because you can't really fully understand it. And so why does this stuff matter? Why does it even matter to sit in and to understand that all is vanity? Why can't we just skip through it? Why can't we just go elsewhere? Well, Christian or struggling person who is here at church, you are put in this meaningless world because there is a God who loves you. And he longs to give voice to some of your pain. He doesn't think that you just need to clean yourself up and to be okay. Because that's not the reality of being a person who is living in a broken and fallen world. Um, Life is difficult. Life is hard. And we actually need to hear those things. And we need to wrestle with that reality. We need, to, we, we need things that actually tell us that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's this great book written by Cornelius Plantiga 
that it's titled not the way it's supposed to be. And my wife and I, since we read it 15 years ago, have often been repeating that phrase to one another because we know that especially when things that don't make any sense happen, we just need something to say in that moment. Oftentimes, the world is that way. Our lives are that way. It does not make sense why we have to deal with sadness or experience the same thing over and over and over again. And in this, I love um, this idea that David Zoll brings up in his new book, Low Anthropology, that in recognizing that life is hollow, that there is frailty in the world, that we actually don't have to take all of human beings as seriously as we do, that we can have what, what he gives us as a low anthropology because human beings often mess up over and over and over again, and that there is sin mixed up in the greatest of, of ideas and in the most altruistic of us. And so we often need to, to, to recognize that we can't expect everything of our fellow human beings And that that actually gives us the opportunity to take ourselves and others less less seriously and then to look to God. Because he is the one who can give us all good things. And that we can look to him and that we can put our trust in him because he is good. The promises of the secular world um, are simply fleeting. Um, there, are, there are essentially no promises, um, Solomon is telling us. The sin that we are infected with in this world is why we struggle. Um, it's maybe the reason why you feel like you have to have some kind of hobby or some kind of thing uh, in order to, to make friends or in order to have um, good relationships with people or in order to look good in, in your community even. And um, what, what Solomon is saying here is that these are things, even the best of things, can produce sadness and defeat in us. And I think that so many Americans <clears throat> um, who are Christians, we have this idea that if we just do one good thing, if we just have some, something that we are good at or that we can do good in this world, that things will be okay. That maybe we can change our country, that maybe we can change our neighbor. Um, and Ecclesiastes and Solomon help us to recognize that it is only through God alone that things will change. That we in our frailty cannot do this. Um, that we are limited in the things that we deal with. And so, with all of this being said, thank goodness this is not the end of what I have to say because it would be defeating and it would be hard. Now, Solomon leaves us here, but he also gives us ideas and, and gives us reason to hope in this passage. And so the question is, where is the hope uh, in Ecclesiastes in, in, as a whole, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing, but also in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Everything is vanity. All of this is vanity. Well, I want you to recognize a couple of things. First of all, in all the things I listed off and everything that I read, what he is looking at is this world, the creation. He's looking at human beings 
He's looking at the things that are happening in the world, this thing that um, seems like clockwork, and he is saying that that is broken, meaningless. And so that is what he is speaking to. And by being the, the king of Jerusalem, uh, the king of Israel, he is one who is a representative of God's people. And being a representative of God's people, God handpicked Solomon to be the representative designated to put uh, the, the word of God, but also to represent God and his presence to these people, to give them the goodness of, of what they needed to hear and what they needed to see um, from the Lord. They are also those who had walked with God and had been given wisdom. Um, and many of these people, and Solomon himself had been lured up to the high places to sacrifice uh, and to, to worship idols. And they had recognized and they had maybe even seen the allure, the allure of doing it, but the frailty that it gives. And so Solomon and his priests and those who represent God would have been pointing God's people to God. And especially in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which any Jewish person today or back 3,000 years ago when this is written would have known. It would have been all over their households. It would have been all over the streets. And it reads this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now what this, and this is called the Shema, what, 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 what you really need to gain from this is that God would have been ever-present in the household of, of the people of Israel. That he would have been known by them. And that when visitors or when refugees or when people that are passing through would have seen them, they would have known that there was something that was distinct about them. And what Deuteronomy 6 also invites us to see is that God longs to be near to his people that he longs to be present with them. It's almost as though in Deuteronomy 6, God is whispering, I want to be with you. And it is truly the best thing for you to continue to follow after me. At the same time, um, God does not speak as though his people should be cloistered into these private communities separated from anyone else. There's a humbling to, Right? That Ecclesiastes lies in the same place, in the same book where we have Deuteronomy. And so that there is meaningless all in this world, even in these beautiful communities, even in the beautiful communities in Israel. There, there were lies that people were believing. There was meaninglessness in their own lives. And we have to go and fight against that and to turn back to Deuteronomy 6 over and over and over again as the people of God. And yet, the Christian church actually has a better way of not simply just going back to those words. These are great words. 
Deuteronomy 6, in my opinion, is something that every Christian should know and memorize and be something that is on your heart because you believe that, that God is with you and that he loves you and that your whole life is all about God. And yet the Christian church has Jesus at the center of it, who came and was sacrificed on our behalf after living a perfect life, after doing everything that, that was necessary, um, that, he, that he lived a perfect life, that he suffered and died, was buried, was raised again, um, it is, ascends on high and is coming back for us. So our repent and believe is not toward Deuteronomy 6 and knowing these words and having them on our hearts, but having them on our hearts because Jesus came and died on our behalf. To recognize that the things of this world will not satisfy us, that they won't truly give us meaning, that we can't fully put our trust in them, that it is only in Jesus alone that we can put our trust in. And this is the Jesus who said, you cannot serve both God and money. It's clear in hearing Ecclesiastes, it is vanity. Money is vanity. Possessions are vanity. It will ultimately give you dissatisfaction. And so so Jesus is actually being kind to us and saying, not slapping us around and saying, of course you shouldn't be doing this, but saying, I want you to be with me. Because I can give you true rest and I can give you true contentment and true satisfaction. The promise, friends, is ultimately in God alone, but in the God who sent Jesus to die on our behalf. One of the greatest challenges, I think, for us to um, believe in this is that we want a happily ever after story like Disney would want to write. We, w- we would want to know that, well, once we believe in, in this Jesus, that things are just going to get better for us, that our life is actually going to have satisfaction, uh, that maybe we'll even be rich. I don't know. There, there are all the things that we think will, will happen. Um, and the truth is that life may actually be really, really difficult. I had mentioned this um, a couple of months ago whenever I was here, but the book Everything Just Changed, uh, written by Daniel Nairi, is a book that gives you a picture of what it means to follow Jesus, not knowing what is going to happen next. Um, His mother had been in a very successful family, uh, was known uh, by, by many, many people as being of this particular type of, of uh, Muslim background in uh, Iran. And so they were wealthy beyond uh, imagine. And there's, uh, there's even a quote that says that even $8 million of, of gold wasn't worth sacrificing the fact that she knew that she had the greatest treasure in the world, which was Jesus alone. Um, that that, ha- that living a very, very difficult, very hard, very strained life, knowing that Jesus was her Lord, was more important than having everything else. Or even the song that we'd sing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Do we believe that? 
Do we long to believe that? I know it's a, it's a struggle for me because I just want to think that there is some kind of happily ever after story. But oftentimes we are called to live in some difficult circumstances. And so are we willing to simply long for the coming of Jesus, knowing that he has all things um, for us in glory, but to, and, and to know that Jesus is enough, even when we don't feel great, even when things aren't perfectly put together. In conclusion, uh, I just want to, w- want to give you guys the hope that this gospel has been enough for people for a long, long time. Um, the story of Daniel Nairi and his family um, is, is one, and it gives, I mean, it, it honestly encourages me to do my work on campus even more uh, hearing that, but also to know that for over 2,000 years, many people have, uh, have said that Jesus is more important than anything else that I could ever imagine. Um, and that following him is the best thing. And so that is the best story that we can live into. And I would encourage you guys to read this knowing that everything else that the world can give us is nothing compared to what Jesus can provide for you. Um, being on a college campus, that message is really hard for many of my students to hear because they have at their fingertips the potential of what could be, of the the things that they can accomplish, that that they can uh, take hold of. But many of them are following Jesus, knowing that he is more important than any other thing imaginable. So for you, I encourage you uh, to consider that today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for our time this morning. I pray, um, Lord, that our hearts would be shaped Um, by your gospel word that um, you are the God who gives us all good things. Um, Lord, that uh, even even as we see things that are difficult and that we recognize as vanity, um, Lord, that we know that you are the good God who comes to us and longs to be with us. I pray that we um, would even hear your voice this week and that we would uh, long to follow you and the things that you have us involved with, either people or um, the different work that we are doing. Um, Father, thank you for um, giving us Ecclesiastes. I pray that it would be an encouragement and a balm for many of us today um, who don't have everything together. We love you, Jesus, and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.